This short code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at MedEdMedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the short code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews by students for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Bettler. With me today, in the form of electrons, slurped off the internet, are a number of up and coming medical students, all M1s, fresh from the last test their first year of medical school. All the way from Cherokee, Iowa, say hello to Anna Wilcox. Hi, it's Anna. (laughs) (laughs) Hailing from Redmond, Washington, it's Camilla Kazara. Hello. Or Kazara. Yeah, either one works. Wow, that's very kind of you. Say hello to Ames, Iowa's own Hannah Steenblock. Hi, guys. And if Dubuque, Iowa has any hometown heroine to be proud of, it's surely Greta Beck. <laughs> Hi, guys. It's a lady cast today featuring women whose names end in ah. And before we get started, I want to ask you listeners to do something special for us. Spread the word about us. Share an episode of the Short Code Podcast wherever you hang out online with other pre-meds or medical students. And I will send you a free gift, a token of our appreciation. It's one of our new logo pins designed and made by me with love. Just send a screenshot of your post to the shortcodes at gmail.com with a mailing address. And I'll not only thank you publicly on the show, but I'll send you one of those pins absolutely free. Start off the show, listener Christy wrote to the shortcodes at gmail.com this week with a question about how best to talk about her current career and her med school application. And I thought, hmm, what the heck? Let's have Christy on the show to ask her question. Uh, Christy, are you there? I am. Hey there. Wow. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from my humble living room in South Carolina, nice. Greenville, South Carolina. Well, uh, what do you what do you do there? I live in Greenville. I'm a nurse at Spartanburg Regional in Spartanburg, which is about 40 minutes from where I live. Okay. So uh, tell us about how can we how can we help you? What's your question? So I've been listening to y'all for a while, and I never really thought to email just because that seemed like I don't know way out there. Like there's some God sitting up there that would maybe find my message. But I was like, I heard it was in the shame podcast. Um, one of the students was talking about CECOM. And that's actually one of the schools I've been looking at applying to. And I was like, well, like, what? What? I, I might as well get some input. <laughs> so, yeah, I emailed asking about that. And just to kind of see, like, as a nurse, how do I make my application stand out, but not ask, like, not sound kind of pretentious, I guess. That's the last thing I want. Yeah. You, you want to talk about your profession as it is now um, and what's meaningful about it to you and how, you know, and how to, so how to talk about it in a meaningful way during your application process without coming off as a know-it-all, I think is the phrase you used. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, uh, did any of my esteemed co-hosts come from uh, other healthcare-related uh, professions? I did. So I'm formally trained as a dietitian, um, but during my internship year is kind of when I decided I wanted to go into medical school. So once I finished training and passed my boards, I kind of pursued that. So I haven't ever officially worked as a dietitian, but I could have if I wanted to, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But that being said, I did use that background um, as kind of a highlight in my medical school application. So I kind of faced like a similar um, situation of um, like, how do I use this to my advantage without seeming like indecisive or seeming like a know-it-all? Yeah, you almost had, in some ways, you almost had the reverse problem, right? You're like... Yeah. How long have you been a nurse, Christy? It'll be four years in July. Okay. What do you what do you think? Any any first any first thoughts for uh, for Christy that you want to talk about? Well, for me, it was more so um, kind of framing my background as just kind of part of my journey to medical school, more than looking at them as two different tracks, like the dietitian, or in your case, the nurse track or the doctor track. Um, and I think that really helped in making it seem like it was really beneficial. Um, without sounding too pretentious. So you didn't so much um, change your mind. Right. Uh, at least according to your application, you, you know, it was just the path that you were on. Right. Um, yeah, that's great. So that's my first piece of advice is instead of worrying about what it looks like to be like changing career paths or I think in the email or the question I saw, um, if they ask you why MD instead of ARNP if you're already a nurse, I think just kind of instead of pitting these two careers against each other, just kind of look at it as just all part of one journey and you're just taking a different path than a lot of other people are. Um, but that makes you unique. I mean, I'm sure the people that read these applications go through thousands, you know, and so like seeing one that's a nurse is going to make you stick out to them. So um, I think it's a positive thing um, as long as you like I said don't frame it as um, you're picking this over being a nurse or you think this is better than being a nurse type of thing yeah that's that's great what have you found meaningful about nursing Christy so much it's it really was my very first look at patient care um, besides of course nursing school but I just fell in love with the way that you have such an impact on people's lives, just in, in small ways and in big ways. But you're there with the patients day in, day out at their side when they receive bad news, when they need a way to get out of the situation they're in, when they're having a life changing emergency, anything like that. Being a nurse meant like I would be there for them in every single moment. Mm -hmm. um, and I loved how much diversity there was in the ER. I think that's been like profoundly impactful on my life just because you take care of patients in all different populations, walks in life, socioeconomic statuses. And that really was the framework for me thinking about going to medical school after initially deciding to be a nurse in nursing school and just kind of circling back and being like, okay, like maybe I can actually do this. Let's think about this again. I think that's great. I, you know, one thing that occurred to me while you were telling that you were saying that is there is a little bit of a danger in saying that you want to have more of an impact um i would frame that a little differently i would say that you know you 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 get a lot of value out of being there for people in their darkest moments maybe something something like that i feel like you have a strength on your application too that a lot of us didn't have who came straight from undergrad like we're using shadowing experiences, saying that we have a lot of clinical <laughs> experience, but really that's not true. You know, I've never put my hands yeah. on a patient before. And for mm -hmm. you, I think you can really use that to your strength. And unlike a lot of your peers who will be applying, you've actually dealt with patients for four years. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't 
try and think that that's a weakness that is for sure a positive part of your application yeah yeah i feel like a lot of people come in and they're like well i want to deal with patients i want to work with patients like for me like greta said i shadowed and then i worked in a lab so like theoretically in my mind like i do want to work with patients but i didn't know that until starting so like i feel like it's just you can be even more decisive in your choice you know like this is what i want to do yeah, like the whole point of shadowing, right, that, that you guys all had to go through, the whole point of shadowing is to, you know, give you some exposure to what it's, to what doctors experience on a day-to-day basis, right? And that's to make sure that this is what you really want to do. That's to help solidify that choice for you. If you did shadowing, you were like, well, shit, this sucks. Why would I want to do this? <laughs> then hopefully you would self-select out. Mm-hmm. Um so I, I feel like uh, Christy, you have um, yeah, you've got that, you've got that down. Um, so I think um, so. So you've talked a little bit. So what compelled you though to apply to medical school? So to give a little bit of background, um, I had wanted to go to medical school when I was looking at colleges for undergrad and picking a major. Um, but I come from a background that doesn't really support women and sh- like big professions Mm -hmm. and I was told like don't go to medical school you're not going to be able to be a good mom you're not going to be able to be there for your family I'm like what family like I'm 16 years old but (laughs) when I faced the decision for a major I just had a lot of insecurities about whether I'd be able to be a doctor and make it through medical school so for me nursing was like a way to be involved in medicine but not have all that responsibility yeah. And so in nursing school, like in lectures, when the professor would be wrapping it up and say, OK, that's all you need to know for nursing. If you ever go into a bigger scope of practice, you'll need to know more about this. And I'd be like, hold up, like <laughs> this is so disappointing. Like we just started talking about this. and I had this huge, huge desire for more knowledge. But it wasn't until being a nurse, being in a clinical setting and working alongside the physicians and seeing what they were doing and just that passion was really rekindled. I was like, this is definitely what I want to do. There was just no going back from there. That's great. So, so why do you think medical school is then the next step? I mean, what, I guess why, I guess that, I mean, you, you mentioned this in your email to me, you know, why not RN? Why not, you know, LPN? Well, you know, any of the other options available to you? Um, Because you could get more into it through those paths. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I probably spent, two years after starting to think about this, just thinking like, do I, should I apply to nurse practitioner school? Like, would this satisfy me? I started an application to several nurse practitioner schools. I couldn't even make it past the first paragraph of the mission statement. Cause I was like, this is just not who I am, not what I want. And I think when it comes down to it, it's being able to have the knowledge and the responsibility to make those decisions for a patient, to take a much more active role in their care at the end of the day, making the decisions for the patient and for the care team. And I mean, this will be something I put in the personal statement, but talking to you guys, like I work alongside nurse practitioners and PAs, and they're always having to have their decisions signed off by the doctors and everything they do, they're having to get signed off. And that's just not something I would want for myself. I want to be able to have all the, like the highest level of knowledge that I can to provide care for patients. So the question I have for you is, can you take those answers and weave them into a story? So you've come up with some pretty good things to talk about. Um, and people love stories and ad comms are made of people. Um, 
I mean, they don't expect you to know everything about being a doctor, so you don't need to worry about demonstrating knowledge aside from your MCAT or your, or your you know, grades in undergrad or whatever, uh, you're in nursing school, whatever. So you want to show them the kind of doctor that you want to be. Um, so make sure that your personal statement shows that you're intellectually flexible enough to use what you already know while understanding that doctoring is a different skill set mm -hmm. um, and that you have a lot to learn about that. Um, I wouldn't talk so much. I don't know if I would talk so much about the uh, the autonomy aspects of it that you mentioned. I'm not sure about that. What do you guys think? I mean, my first thought was, well, doctors work in teams. Mm -hmm. And while, yes, they often have the final say, um, I'm not sure if that would come off as, diff you know, I'm not sure how that would come off in, in writing. What do you guys think? Yeah, so I think in any aspect of your application, you want to keep it positive. So instead of focusing on the things about um, like a DNP or an ARNP that you don't like, you need to focus on the things about an MD that you do like. Um, so I don't know if I would mention that you had started some of these applications and then didn't finish them. Because again, that goes back to the indecision thing that I was talking about earlier. Um, but you could but frame yeah. that. You could frame that in a way that is a part of that journey. You yeah, know, I did consider these other choices, but I decided they weren't for me because X, Y, and Z. Right. Mm -hmm. I, th I think what would be really valuable for your application would be going back to your experiences working with physicians and how you mentioned that you would have often discussions with them and you would want more. You would want more knowledge. You want, want more understanding of the pathophysiology of the disease or diagnosis. I think that would be really valuable in your application because it shows that you want to grow more in, in your role in healthcare, um, and it doesn't really dwell on the negatives of any position. It just shows that you want more knowledge, and you would get that with going to medical school. Yeah. I also think that, um, like, with you as a nurse, like, having been a nurse for four years, like, I think you'll be able to understand more of that position, which will then help you be, like, a team leader. You know, mm -hmm. like, you have that experience, and then you can work probably a little better with them because like you know exactly what they're going through mm -hmm. yeah because you know that a, a nurse can save a doctor's ass mm -hmm. <laughs> real good <laughs> my father was a was a physician assistant and he and and, and he always used to tell me and you got to listen to the nurses because they mm -hmm. will i don't know why he was telling me this i was never <laughs> I, I, I didn't even know i was going to work in a medical school never mind you know become a doctor or something but used to tell me how, you know, you got to trust the nurses because they will save your ass. <laughs> um, what else? Going back to the autonomy part really quick, though, because yeah. I feel like we haven't fully um, given her an answer on that. I think you're right in that maybe mentioning that word directly kind of takes away from the aspect of being a team player. I think maybe more framing it as like an independence to practice exactly what you want and be an expert in that field, to be able to practice abroad if you want to be able to do whatever research you want to do. Like the opportunities are plentiful there. Um, I think you can also so, use what Camilla said about like that thirst for knowledge that you have. Yeah. I think with that goes like sort of like a thirst for autonomy in that you want to really understand like the basic mechanisms behind disease. And with that comes making the next decision for your patient. Um, so I, I don't think you need to like focus autonomy solely, but kind of use it as a, like weave it into your other interests. Kind of going back to having a story, do you have a, a specific moment in your past couple of years where you really knew that you wanted to pursue um, being a doctor? 
Yeah, I do. Uh, it was in 2017. I was at um, the Witherspoon Institute at Princeton for a medical ethics seminar over a week. And it was, I, it was designated for physicians and for medical students, but I somehow got in. Um, I think they wanted a little bit more diversity, so they included me and another nurse. I imagine and you creeping into the back. Like. <laughs> <laughs> and all these thoughts had been going on in my head since starting nursing, but I had never really voiced them to anyone or like bounced ideas off anyone. And I still just had, the, I guess, like that complex that I couldn't do it or I, I wouldn't ever be able to get on that path. And then surrounded by all these medical students and doctors, they just kind of asked me about it and kind of brought it out of me. And they were so affirming and encouraging and kind of gave me that push that I needed. It provided lots of resources, um, mentoring, and just kind of gave me that, I guess, that belief in myself that I could do it. Yeah. But it was it was lots of experiences with patients, with doctors that had led up to that point of decision. Yeah, your your story isn't an uncommon one. I mean, I I can think of a few people off the top of my head who have either been nurses or PAs or or EMTs or you know. Just any number of allied health dietitians, any number of allied health professionals who ultimately decided that they wanted to pursue an MD. I mean, you're, uh, I think you're in, you're in a good position um, to make this jump. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, and, and, you know, do all the other things that you would do with your, with your, uh, with your application, you know, when it comes to your personal statements, I mean, you must at this point have some docs that you, that you trust well enough to, to read your personal statement and ask them if they can see the person you're reading about, you know, as a doctor, um, you know, polish that statement until it, it shines like crazy. You know, any good writers ask for help. <laughs> um, whatever you write about though, um, I think you should be prepared to talk about it on the interview trail while, you know, showing that gleam in unless your you eye. come here. What? <laughs> Said unless you come here cause they don't read anything before they interview you. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> But, you know, you never know what schools do with applications. But, you know, don't try to, don't, but, you know, the point is don't try to fake it and write about what you think they want to read. Uh, you know, you got to be true to your vision of yourself and you got to show your passion. Um, and that's really what's going to um, sort of push them over the edge towards, you know, giving you that acceptance letter. I would actually love to hear how your experience uh, with COVID patients has been recently. And if that maybe at all has changed your perspective on the healthcare field and the profession itself going forward. Yeah, um, that's a lot to unload there. So <laughs> I think yeah. there have been tremendous changes in hospitals and units and individual departments like all over the world with how they're taking care of patients and dealing with the public. Um, but at my hospital in February was when they first started implementing a lot of policies, procedures, and there was still just kind of an attitude of like, oh, this will be over in a few weeks, admins just kind of overreacting. Um, and the first few weeks in February, I distinctly remember all of us nurses and doctors joking about it. And then come the first week of March, seeing what was happening in the news, and all around the United States, especially in New York, we were just, it was just kind of like a gut punch. Like mm -hmm. everyone's awareness just went way up. And I started keeping a journal back then, probably the first week of March, just because it was just this tremendous feeling of uneasiness, like not knowing what was going to happen day to day. And the first thing I remember was they like restricted all visitors except in 
life or death situations like patients actively dying um, or labor and delivery. And so the, with that came a tremendous drop in volume of patients as well. Um, people stopped coming to the ER for the things that they would come with. Pretty much we were just seeing elderly patients sent from nursing homes and then life-saving emergencies. And there would be like going from like 12 to 13 patients in each area. So my ER has almost 90 beds. And we went from having those full every day, having huge waits and triage to having just a couple patients in each area. Um, and for a while it was great because we still had all the staff. So we had a lot of downtime, time to just kind of relax, kind of overcome some burnout. And then staff had to get cut because all the hospitals were just bleeding a lot of money. Um, and I know all the hospitals in my surrounding area were furloughing all their PRN staff, furloughing um, most of the mid-level providers, um, the nurses, the techs. And then when the patients started to come back to the ER, when people started testing positive for COVID and coming in or going into respiratory distress and coming in, then there was a, a much smaller crew of staff. So that really caused us to have to rally together and our teamwork has just improved tremendously in the past few months. But the way things are now, I think there's been a really, really good job of the public not coming to the ER for things that they don't need to. Um, and the patients that we've been seeing there have been patients who truly need emergency care for the most part. And really, like if you look at one hospital to the next, things are very different. Like I'd like to say that we were all kind of standard with our PPE use with visitation, with policies. But like I know my friend who works in one of the New York hospitals, like they're wearing bunny suits, several masks, um, putting on more, probably more equipment than the people at my hospital would use. And if you look at another hospital, you'll just see a different use. So I won't go into that much because I have a lot of thoughts about about the CDC and our guidelines. Um, but I will say <laughs> that- I don't think you're the only one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I just made such a big gesture, I ripped my earbuds out. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I've tried to emphasize to my like to my teammates and to people that work in different hospitals, like really do your research about personal protective equipment because it's your life on the line as a provider in the hospital. And if you think something will give you more safety than you're getting, like pursue that. And that doing in doing that, you're protecting yourself and also protecting the patients that you're caring for. Yeah. But I think it's it's been really weird for hospitals that haven't seen that massive surge that we've expected because it's just kind of this feeling of guilt. I look at what's happening in New York. And I'm like, okay, I'm not experiencing anything like that. I hope I don't. But there are nurses and doctors and care teams that are completely exhausted, have been going through so much over the last few months, completely depleting their resources, having to look at alternative therapies because they're running out of medications. And then like, here I am in my hospital and we still have everything that we need. We haven't been overwhelmed. The surge that we expected in April didn't happen. So that's just been a very weird dynamic. And I kind of go through this whole routine in my head every time I go to work. I'm like, okay, what I'm doing is still valuable, even though I don't feel like I'm doing anything really to make a huge difference because I haven't had that big summons from a big event the way that I thought I would. So how are you coping emotionally then? Um, or what is your, what is the emotional process been like? I love that you were journaling. That's, that's a really interesting mm -hmm. step for you to have taken. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, because I had been, my friends and um, coworkers, we had all been texting so much and sharing so many emotions and feelings. I knew that I, w- I would want to look back at it and be able to reflect just because all the days kind of blur into one. I don't even, most of the days don't even know one day from the other, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, just because that change in routine has just made life seem a lot more fluid in some ways. Mm-hmm. But yeah, journaling, having something to look back at one day and even just looking and saying, okay, this is what things were like in February. This is May. This is how much things have changed just like personally, professionally has been really interesting and insightful. It's really interesting when you talk about how the number of patients with um, like serious like cardiovascular emergencies has decreased, it sounds like. And I've seen a few articles showing that, too, that um, like the number of strokes and heart attacks coming into ERs has declined, um, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think it's I like hearing that from you in person because I've read a few articles on that as well. Yeah. So the so the, the prevailing thought is that these things are still happening. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. People, people are just still aren't coming in because they're afraid to come in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Probably a lot more people dying at home. Yeah. Dying in nursing homes. Well, it's interesting that you talk about that that feeling of guilt for not being more, um, I don't know, a part of the frontline sort of situation, I guess. Um, but for what it's worth, uh, I think we all are just doing our part. Um, you know, even, even, even little old me, uh, who just stays home and goes to work once a week to do a podcast. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know what I'm trying to say here, (laughs) (laughs) except that, uh, you know, you're doing what you got to do. You're doing what you need to do. And it'll be great to, to, uh, see you someday be a part of the MD profession and, uh, putting your skills and your, and your, uh, and your being into that, um, someday. It's going to be great. Let's do some, let's talk about some news. Are you going to, do you mind sticking around with us for a little while? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Talk about some news. Uh, from our life makes no sense now desk. NPR is reporting on a finding by the national safety council that while we're all staying at home and not driving very much, uh, there was a decrease in the absolute number of fatalities, uh, among among uh, drivers found for March, but the rate of motor vehicle accident fatalities has risen by 14% compared to March 2019. Uh, looks like Connecticut had the biggest rate increase by 42%. Hawaii decreased its rate by 32%. Iowa decreased its rate by 13%. And Christine's state of South Carolina, Christie's state of South Carolina, their rate went down by 12%. But a lot of other states have uh, kind of gone through the roof. While everybody is uh, trying to flatten the curve to free up the health care system capacity, <laughs> some drivers are using the newly quiet roads to go crazy on <laughs> Yes. Have you noticed an increase in, in or a, a change at all in, in, in fatalities? I mean, I guess you would have noticed a decrease, if anything. We did have a couple weeks where we weren't seeing as many traumas due to motor vehicle collisions. And I like driving to work, driving around, there'd be very few cars on the roads. And then when the restrictions were lifted, the morning I was driving to work, I was actually late because there was so many accidents. There was traffic backed up and I had to call in. I was like, I was like, listen, I've been driving this for two years now on day shift. I was like, I'm never late to work because the roads are empty, but I'm sitting behind several accidents. It's so, like everybody's that like, was oh, yeah, we could drive again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe people forgot how to drive. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah, the report speculates that uh, because law enforcement 
is more focused on COVID-19 issues. Driver, drivers feel less inclined to obey speed limits. <laughs> um, another possible contributor is, contributor is that some states are employing tactics to combat the knock-on effects of the current healthcare crisis by relaxing safety rules. So for instance, and I was surprised to read this because I have a teenager. For instance, some states have apparently stopped requiring teen drivers to pass road tests before getting their licenses. I, what? <laughs> <laughs> and then others are, and I didn't know that this was even possible because I'm a formal commercial, I'm a former commercial driver. But according to this article, some states have reduced the number of hours or have increased the number of hours that commercial drivers are allowed to drive uh, their tractor trailer trucks and things like that. So, uh, could be a number of reasons for that. But I'm surprised because as a former commercial driver, I thought those were federal, federally regulated. I would never, under any circumstance, <laughs> if I were in charge, say, yeah, you know what? I would like to put more 14-year-olds on the road at this time. <laughs> I don't know what it's like in South Carolina, but in Iowa, a 14-year-old can get or I think it's a 14 and a half year old can get a license. Mm -hmm. Is that right? You can get a, a school permit. permit. Yeah, you, yeah. Can, you can drive to school and back if you're 14 years old. Yeah. yeah. No, 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 no. That's a bad idea. That's terrible. <laughs> well, I had a great time. If you took driver's ed. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah. You can get it before you can get the school permit before you turn six, before you turn 16. But you have to have taken driver's ed, I think. I know. And you can't. I mean, you can only drive like to school and back, mm -hmm. right? Wow. Yeah. I mean, those are the Not rules. I was going to say that's the only place I drove when I was 15, but yeah, <laughs> that's the rules. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. There, there are multiple ways to get home to my house. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay. You know, same. I could either take like the one mile stretch or I could take like the five mile loop where I go past like the Starbucks and the mall and... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> everywhere else yeah i think we gotta i think we gotta rethink these ideas that we're having yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh this just in if you're a citizen or perhaps a president pinning your hopes for covid19 treatment on hydroxychloroquine you might want to have a rethink a large multinational analysis published in the lancet has found that controlling for many comorbidities and confounding variables among hospitalized covid19 patients neither hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine was associated with any evidence of benefit. Instead, there was 137% increased risk of ventricular arrhythmias and a 34% greater hazard for in-hospital death. Uh, meanwhile, White House physician Dr. Sean Conley on Monday released a memo saying that he and Mr. Trump had discussed the evidence for and against hydrochloroquine and that they had concluded that the potential benefit from treatment outweighed, outweighed the relative risk. I would love to have been there. <laughs> For that conversation. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm not making a political statement. I just think it would be fine. Um, the White House hasn't responded to CNBC's request for comment on this new study. Um, and other studies have found increased cardiovascular risks and have been halted for safety reasons, including some in which patient, patients died after experiencing arrhythmia. So, uh, you know, just another, another bit of, bit, bit of, um, of uh, knowledge in our road to uh, overcoming this problem. I'm going to uh, put on my medical educator hat today, pose some ethical dilemmas for you, my friends. <laughs> Let's see what you make of them, because ethics is the foundation of decision making in medicine. I mean, well, I mean, there's knowledge, 
<laughs> information. Um, so here's what I want you to do. In the chat, uh, please select my name as the only recipient. Everybody ready? Yep. Mm -hmm. I want you to type a phrase that a creepy person might whisper into your ear. You want to think about a phrase. Like while you're working? Just anytime. In general? Anytime. Let's say you're on the street, walking to work, whatever, and a creepy person whispers in your ear. What would be something that they might whisper? I feel like anyone whispering anything in my ear on the street is creepy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah just like the murmur of avocado. Yeah. Or, <laughs> yeah. That's creepy. Raindrops. Horse, horseshoe. <laughs> oh, my word. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Oh, Christy's doing multiple ones. You're cheating. <laughs> I don't know. I'm bad at this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Oh. Boy. All right. Here's the ethical dilemma. I, By the way, when I make these things, Christy, I don't know if it comes off on the show. When I make up these games, I have no idea how whether or not these are good ideas <laughs> or not. All right. So here's the ethical dilemma. Your name is Belon Tusk, the CEO of a high-tech widget manufacturer. Well, let's go. An auto manufacturer. You released a new car that features an artificial intelligence that is designed to not only make driving safer, but to ease road rage by telling you nice things about yourself. While sales are hot, your car is the only model you make so far. And now a bug has been discovered in its software that causes it to rarely shout into your ear. I'll just pick one at random. I like your leggings. <laughs> you can't you can't fix the bug without recalling the car and if you do it's possible that your company will fold what ethically must you do you gotta balance some things here right i say we keep it it's a nice compliment you know yeah like that's pretty nice <laughs> all right well what about uh let's see <laughs> yeah what about i've been watching you <laughs> or nice pajamas <laughs> or I know your last exam grade <laughs> yeah so what do you do do you recall the car and fix it at no cost or do you pretend it's not a flaw but a feature <laughs> did you say it's like a self-driving car yeah yeah well it's got it, it makes things Safer is what I said. Maybe it's good that it's watching you then. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> so but just a like shouting, a, like a comforting thing, like oh, it's been watching me. That's nice. <laughs> oh, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. I hadn't thought of that angle. I guess I'd want to know, like, does the shouting random creepy things cause the listener to have increased risk of an accident, or has it like led to accidents? Okay, well, that's uh, that's unstudied. <laughs> at this point yeah so i think we definitely want to inform our customers of the issue <laughs> yeah just just so they I'm can imagine that letter i'm imagining that yeah. letter arriving in your mailbox uh please note that uh well please note that a very small number of customers have experienced <laughs> and it will rarely just, shout creepy things at you just and it's not think it's, it's in their head yeah and it's not april fools it's, <laughs> it's real right <laughs> So do you recall the car and fix it at no cost, or do you just claim it's a feature? You gotta, you gotta put your, gotta stick your claim somewhere. I say it's a feature. <laughs> Me too. New feature. I, 
I agree. Okay. Can we customize it? Yeah. <laughs> we were can we customize it? <laughs> if we were like collectively way more like twisted as a group and had come up with some actual bad stuff, I'd yeah, probably say something different. Yeah. But, you know, like nice pajamas, nice leggings. Yeah, you guys were all very you guys were all very positive. Well, looked at from a certain perspective. <laughs> positive. Except maybe for Greta. Yeah, you don't know who my said, life I angry. know your last <laughs> That can be pretty dark. All right. In the chat again with me as a recipient. I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer. I think uh, I think this is just, <laughs> as with many things in ethics, there is no right or wrong answer. All right. In the chat again, again with me as a recipient, type the worst thing your body could involuntarily do during lecture. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The worst thing your body could do involuntarily during lecture. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's getting into the swing of things. <laughs> All right, I think everybody has entered something in. Yes, your so the, your ethical dilemma is this. Your name is Lark Pazamunti. You are a professor at a prominent Midwestern medical school, and right now you're standing before a large lecture audience talking about ATP synthesis for some reason. <laughs> I know I'm mixing up yeah. things a little bit. Uh, suddenly... You feel the urgent need to blank. You've got 10 seconds left before lecture is over, but you're at a crucial teaching moment, one which, if you leave, will cause several students to miss out on something that is on the test. So considering your answers that I haven't read yet, do you finish the lecture no matter your embarrassment, or do you interrupt the lecture to leave and change the test? All right. I have no idea if this is working or not. All right. Do you... So let's say the let's say the thing that you did is projectile vomit. Wow. Hmm. Have you ever has anybody ever actually projectile vomited? Yes, I have. Yes. Yeah. For sure. What were the, Okay, I'm not gonna ask that question. <laughs> it was describe it. A bad bag of spinach that got me. Oh, you were one of those uh, spinach people. Yes. Oh man. Mine was a lot of wine. And then it, I had to throw away my pillows. <laughs> Stay in my pillows. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, these guys have already gone into medical school, so I'm not going to ask you, uh, Christy. Um, uh, yeah, that was one answer. Another answer is shit yourself while sim simultaneously projectile vomiting. That was. Uh, oh God. I that can't have happened to to Anna Wilcox. <laughs> no, not that one. <laughs> uh, Greta contributed start farting uncontrollably. <laughs> Happened to all of us at one time or another. <laughs> uh, loss of bladder, bla bowel and bladder function. I, I see a trend. Yeah. And uh, Hannah contributed explosive uncontrollable diarrhea in the middle of <laughs> all of you. We just had to some be sort anonymous. Of, some sort of gustatory yeah. reaction. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, well, uh, okay, so considering these answers, do you finish the lecture no matter your embarrassment, or do you interrupt the lecture to leave and change the test? I feel like, given your answers, this one's pretty obvious. You leave. Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, no. I would finish the lecture. <laughs> Even shitting yourself? Yeah, because it's going to be so memorable to the students that they'll never forget ATP synthesis. Wow, that's dedication. That is. Yeah. Right that's there. More I, than could, I, I mean, our lecturers, our professors are very dedicated. Yes. They are. Um, so I could, you know, not outside the realm of possibility. 
I think it's a spectrum. Like, if it's like the farting, like that's that's different than shitting yourself. <laughs> you know, like I think I could deal with the farting, but anyway. I'll stay. But you have to leave. <laughs> <laughs> but you will have a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> you all. <laughs> all right. Uh, yeah. No wrong answers here. In the in the chat, type of po- body part or feature you think many people would be okay with having more of, but be sad if they had less of. <laughs> but but the point is, people would be okay with having more of it. Okay, not excited, but okay. But be sad if they had less of it. <laughs> uh, okay, I, I'm puzzled by some of these. So, uh, Greg. <laughs> So Greta said uh, that people would be okay with having more eyes. <laughs> well, can you place the eyes where you want? Because if you could just like put an eye in your back, then I think that would be. Oh. <laughs> that would make back rubs very different. Oh, sure, just cover it up with your hair and uncover oh, it when you need yeah. to use it. Okay. That's interesting. Um, Anna contributed uh, both arms. <laughs> And for men, penises. Because, <laughs> and I'm glad she specified. I'm glad she specified for men. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we'd we'd like to have more arms and penises. I could see it. I suppose. Um, Camilla gave what I thought was uh, a normal answer, which is hair. We'd like. Oh. To have, we'd like to have. I'd like to have more of it. I'm, I'm, I'll be honest with you, I'd like to have more hair. Um, and <laughs> Hannah, uh, why did you, why did you say, oh, Christina used, uh, Chris, Christy used hair too. Sorry, I keep calling you Christina. I mean, I know that's your name, but. <laughs> Either one's fine. Uh, Hannah, Hannah puzzles me. She, uh, she suggested <laughs> that I would like to have a uh, more small bowel. <laughs> uh, why, why would I want that? Okay, well, two things. First of all, you said would be okay with having, but oh. would be sad having less. Oh, okay. Mm. And also, we just took a GI test, so I got bowels on the brain. Yes, but <laughs> clearly. I mean, all I think this. it would be sad to have some bowel resected, but if you yeah. had like a little bit more, like all right, yeah, more absorption, more food, yeah, yeah. more absorption, <laughs> more food. <Yep. laughs> when, would you get more constipation though? Like, because it would just take longer to go through, or was that mm. specifically colon? It's colon. Okay. Yeah. I obviously learned a lot. (laughs) As long as you had good motility. Uh Mm. Sure, sure, sure. All right. Small bowel with good motility. (laughs) And Anna suggested ears would be good to have more of. Yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot of things I'd rather have. I could have a lot more of, you know. Where would you put an extra set of ears that would help you out? Behind the current ones. <laughs> what about like above? Yeah, above. That's what I was thinking. Or below, because if mm. you put them behind, then you block the conduction to the ones behind. Oh, I wasn't mm. thinking that far. I was thinking aesthetically pleasing, probably behind my current set of ears. But... So you just want more ears for the aesthetic, yeah. the aesthetic value. <laughs> uh-huh. More room for earrings. Yeah, right. a lot of earrings. You could have earrings that dangle from one ear to the other mm-hmm. that'd be cool that'd be super cool yeah well considering your answers uh um oh i you know i forgot to read the rest of this <laughs> <laughs> so considering your answers you've been in an accident and have lost your blank a living donor has been found and although their generosity and the miracle of modern medicine 
uh, and through the generosity and the miracle of modern medicine, their blank can be yours via transplant. However, a key component of the supplies for the operation comes from a cute little kitty cat who will die as a result. Do you have the surgery or let the kitty live? You have the surgery. Oh, yeah. Hannah, what? <laughs> I'm a dog person. I'm sorry. So am I, but it's another living creature. Well, another living creature versus more penises. <laughs> okay, well, I guess the caveat here is some of these things you can live without, but some of them mm-hmm. you can't, like a small bowel. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I'm just thinking about my own answer. So I don't know about the penises one, but if it was either I get a new small bowel or a cat lives, I think I'm going to pick the new small bowel for myself. I think every dude would also pick they'd rather have their penis, you know? I think we're being hard with a very broad brush here. (laughs) All right. Fair enough. Well, that is our show. Uh, Anna, Camilla, Hannah, Greta, Christy, thank you for joining me today on the show. Thank you. Yeah, so fun. And what kind of garbage person would I be if I didn't thank you, Shortcoats, for making us part of your week? If you're new here and you like what you heard today, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and wherever else fine podcasts are available. That way it will show up on your mobile device every week automatically ready for you to, to listen to. I remind you that your questions are vital to the show because they mean the show can be what you want it to be about. Be like Christy. Send questions and comments to the shortcoats at gmail.com or you can leave us a message at 347-SHORT-CT. We'll talk about it on the show and maybe even invite you on if that's your thing. While your podcast app is open, we hope you'll be the kind of listener we're always grateful for. Give us some stars and a review and let us know if we're doing right. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine student government government and ongoing support from the Writing in Humanities program. Our opening music is by Dr. Vox and our closing music is by Campusphere. Talk to you in one week. 